stuff's propping it up. There's like the Fed on one side. There's retail investors getting more money on the other side. It's just like a, the bigger they are, you finish it up, Skippy. Well, no. So I was, I mean, the harder they fall is, is the second half of that. You just. <laughs> This podcast contains the arguably witty banter of two friends, Skippy and Dougals, that like to debate about investing. The content is intended to be entertaining and for informational purposes only, not investment advice. You should do your own research and consult a financial professional before using any of the information in this podcast, and especially before investing. There's always lots of groaning in the morning. Ugh. <laughs> Everything okay over there? You all right? Like, having some trouble? No, it's all good. It's all good. I just like to groan. It's my favorite form of complaint, which is my favorite hobby. I love complaining. It's so good. Yeah, it's like really therapeutic. Pisses everyone off that you're around, which is fun, mm-hmm. too. Oh, second favorite hobby. And if you get the two for one special. All um, right. What's happening? We are we going to the fishbowl first. What, what's on your brainiac? Oh, we're going to hit the listener mail because we love the listener mail. Um, and so... I mean, I'm just going to dive right in. This is a, a super smart business owner. They basically said Twitter sucks. And and why are you guys on Twitter? So we might have to revisit that philosophy. Uh, Wait, hold on. So some, someone wrote in to us to tell us to get off of Twitter? Well, no, just said, uh, I, at Skippy Diggles is not working for me. So, uh, yeah. Oh, man. We, so is it, is it upping our Twitter game or is it going to a different platform like Parler? <laughs> probably it's probably a different platform probably uh, okay we'll All investigate right. we'll get our social media team on it i know so here we go i'll uh i'll i'll recap at a high level because i think there's there's so much good stuff here so um he says love the show he wants to talk about the merits of having a cash war ch- chest like we we've talked about that a little bit and basically if you're sitting if you would recommend sitting on more cash than is recommended uh, to take advantage of a buying opportunity, especially if we are nearing a bubble, do you basically go all in with a lump sum purchase if you're looking to invest now or do you dollar cost average? Although it's typically ill-advised to try and time the market. Um, just curious about this at this point in time. You want to start? What do you think? There's a lot. There's, well, I, this, is, I, this is hefta. I mean, yeah. So I have some crazy thoughts here. Kick it off. Right. Historically, uh, Vanguard has the best study here, but there's a lot of similar results, right? So historically, somewhere around 66% of the time, you basically make more money by investing the lump sum. The simple, like if we really break it down simply, the reason for that is the stock market goes up more than it goes down, right? So the right move is often a lump sum, but the, the right move for you could be much different it could be dollar cost averaging it could be sitting on more cash i think about this this actually comes back to like a value investment thesis for me in a weird way because when i'm buying value stocks i know i'm buying stuff that's discounted so i know i'm tilting the odds in my favor and that if i invest the lump sum earlier on i'm buying stuff at a discount to its true intrinsic value and i'm gonna have a better um than average chance of making more money long term. But I'd say it really depends on what you're buying. I if you're buying the Nasdaq 100 right now, which Douglas and I have talked a lot about how expensive tech stocks are. Um, 
I think it's very fair to say you have a greater than average chance of losing money over the next five years at some point over the next five years, not like consistently for the next five years. So those are the factors I'd really look at. One, just the math is in your favor. If you have a sound investment strategy, whether it's 60, 40 stocks, bonds, 100% equities, the Vanguard study that actually is on our Twitter breaks all this down. Um, but two, it's what's your temperament? What are you buying? What's your current concern about the level of the market? Because if all those things are true and you still just can't get comfortable with the current price bubble, then I'd say dollar cost average in. It'll probably cost you a few bucks, um, but that doesn't mean it's wrong. This is a moment where we can uh, we can not go with the the vanilla Gordon Ramsay. Uh, oh, no, hold on. We're not we're not buying Gordon. restaurants. We're not buying restaurants. Uh, the Dave Ramsey um, approach like you didn't do that. I'm not saying you did, but like uh, there's so much nuance in this. Right. And some of the categories that you named, I'm going to frame this not as any sort of uh, uh, advice for people to 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 take, but just like some broad themes too, uh, yeah. to feed off of what you're done. Um, generally speaking, one should have a long term investment view. If you have that long-term investment view, then don't care about timing the market today. With the significant caveat, and this is what you brought up in the NASDAQ 100, and also a little bit of the value investing side, is it does depend on what the heck you buy. Because if you're going to throw everything into what is the most expensive thing today, then, I mean, you know, that, that's, a, that's a personal choice. But that's different than going into the overall market. And so safest bet, dollar cost average or something broad, but, but generally speaking, get your money in the market. I do. This is going to go to the Dougals, right? And you're going to start laughing at me because of my my various indicators. Um, but as a part of the model that I built, I have that I've been honing. Uh, my model does have a, a proxy indicator for 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 market peaks and a proxy indicator for market bottoms that like Goldman Sachs shouldn't use, right? No, no one, no one should use. Y'all shouldn't, you know, be using either. <laughs> um, but more more important than just having that proxy, what I think is important is the first element that you brought up around the investor philosophy, right? Because what the what those proxy indicators do because they're going to be inaccurate to some degree like i know that but they help me to shape my own mental model and so it's yes. it's about when you like want to go in and how you want to go in because you're not just making decisions for today you're making decisions on the future so if today you're saying i'm going to wait around for the for the whole thing to bust at some point you're going to be waiting around for the whole thing to be at the bottom and you're going to spend most of your time not in the market and most of your time not getting those you know those 10 days every decade that actually make up 60, yeah. 70% of you gains. just end up like being um, pseudo paralyzed with, oh, tomorrow or next week's going to be better. And more often than not, what's going to happen is whatever you're trying to buy is going to be more expensive next week than it is today. Um, I've actually kind of, I, I mean, anyone that's invested for decades has lived through this, but I've lived through this fairly recently. Like, I think it was less than six months ago, I wrote, Hey, one of the keys of the 2020 investing timeframe was just staying in the market and being patient. And then I know eight weeks ago, probably I was going to Dougal's like, this is so insane. I want to park my investments on the sidelines, even though I know how stupid that is. Well, I didn't do that. I'm up 20% since then. I mean, it's been feeling irrational for a long time. Um, the worst thing I could have done is park more cash on the sidelines. The triangle here that you mentioned, I just think is so important. What you buy at the valuation you buy matters less if your time horizon is really, really long. But all these things play off each other. So I'd say investor temperament, time horizon, and the current valuation of what you're buying are all key decision makers here. Typically, the math will work in your favor to invest a lump sum as soon as you can invest it with a sound investing strategy. Boom. Nice.
We love we love the listener mail. That was yeah. a particularly good one. I I hope we did it justice because there's so much meat to talk about there. Um, if you have follow up questions, shoot them in. Uh, we'll keep digging into this. All right. And fishbowl, fishbowl. The hot fishbowl topic this week is stimuli. Am I yes. wrong? So here's what's happened with government spending in the past 12 months: uh, 1.7 trillion in March of 2020, followed by. 915 billion in December of 2020, followed by 1.9 trillion uh, this week. I mean, that is a crazy insane. amount of money. Like, insane. I don't even know how to react to this. And Dougals, I know you're going to walk it through us. Uh, I mean, like, Mexico is making money off us because we're just throwing money in the fireplace. Um, it's not, well, I think it's good and bad. I naturally am like a very conservative financial person. And so there's just, scares me um it just seems like too much but um some of the ongoing themes we've talked about over the last several weeks are actually attacked here in ways that i i never thought like there's an expanded earned income tax credit which goes back to the joel greenblatt book and um, will be a inter- really interesting case study long term at a high level like let me just break break down where some of this 1.9 trillion is and then Dougal's jumping in at any point right you have uh Gosh, 410 billion go to stimulus checks, 59 billion for small business, 56 billion transportation, 360 for government. That's a lot of state government subsidies, 176 for education, only a 123 that's directly related to COVID, 16 billion for agriculture, unemployment programs expand by 246. I mean, this is a wide ranging spending effort here. It's crazy. Yeah, it's a, I mean, there's like a political economic agenda folded into these bills, yes. which they're always yes. like, they're always yeah. is, but uh, I think there's more, there's more in here from like just Biden's broad philosophical like take. Um, but yeah, this is, this is huge. So, 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 so huge. Um, and the, the, the $1,400 checks, you know, are fulfilling that promise of getting to $2,000 that, that, uh, yeah. you know, that was, that was given last December, um, which I can't remember if we covered this or not before, but uh, I've been reading, read a few things over the past couple of months, as I'm sure you have around, uh, like how that money was spent, how the last stim- stimuli checks are spent. Yes. And I, I'm going to be really interested. This is, you have to break this down by demographics, both, uh, you know, age, um, socioeconomic and otherwise as to how much ends up going back into the market, right? And how much ends up going as quote unquote relief, right? Cause it's, it seems like that's, that's pretty split. Yes, I, I completely agree. And I think this is going to be incredibly fascinating to watch how this yeah. money gets spent. Yeah, yeah, I think it's gonna be interesting. The, the market piece, I mean, it, retail traders right, right now are like uh, a, a significant portion relative to history, right, as a, as a part of the market, it ebbs and flows. Stuff is propping this market up, right? Depending on the asset class you're going to, we're talking about US equities, especially growth stocks, stuff's propping it up. There's like the Fed on one side, there's retail investors getting more money on the other side. It's just like, a, the bigger they are, you finish it up, Skippy. Well, no, so I was, I mean- The harder they fall is, is the second half of that you just- <laughs> uh, I know this is an investing show, right? Like, and we talk a lot of business and sometimes we talk a little politics. I keep thinking like, 
what is the investing theme that you might be able to take from this much money being spent? But I don't know that it's predictable. I think there's too much uncertainty with uh, where we stand in the recovery, what the virus rollout looks like, if there will be another scare post uh, 50% of the population being vaccinated. Like, I really don't know that there's an investment theme to be made, but I guess I think it's interesting and important to be aware of. Yeah, I mean, there's not necessarily a prediction, but but the the obvious ones I think are what we just talked about around retail, and then the other ones inflation, right? Those are those are like the two that you yeah. you could pull out with a with people being you know frightened of inflation, which like who knows? Like you never know what's going to happen because of the systematic nature of the economy. But the Fed has tried to maintain two percent inflation, has not been able to. So the fear of something that's like runaway inflation is. I'm not, it, I'm not going to say it's unfounded completely because you just never know. We, we're not, there's nothing that's showing us that inflation should be something that we should definitely fear. Keep an eye out for that. And I, I'd especially say because what didn't make it in here, right? One of the notable, the quotable notables that wasn't yeah. in here was the uh, minimum wage increase, right? Yeah. And somewhere Bernie Sanders is sitting with his mittens all a gruff. That means upset. Yeah, but that didn't make it in here because what's one thing that's been missing is, is a wage inflation from any inflation that we've had. And so that, that doesn't seem to be like a, a significant concern, at least in my eyes right now, but we should definitely keep an eye on it. But those are like the two kind of themes there um, that I would say you can pull out. But generally speaking, just getting our economy a strong foundation again is a, is a little something, something. Oh, let me throw out one more thing. Sorry. Yeah. Because I'm, I'm sitting, I'm sitting on the soapbox, but now I'm going to stand up like a champion. The other thing is, as we've talked about before, what in even if there was additional inflation, not runaway, right? But if there was additional inflation, um, the amount of debt that's sitting in this country right now, something else we've talked about, and mm -hmm. assuming that there's productivity growth, right? With that inflation, it could help because the value of your, of your debt, or sorry, the value of the dollar relative to debt, right? Is advantageous um, in periods of inflation when debt isn't crazily increasing more and there's still productivity. I'll sit back down. Gosh, are you taking me like back to macroeconomics? I mean, are you talking about government basically inflating their way out of debt? Or are you arguing for the people? I'm even saying people. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I, people, I think, though. I mean, I'm not here to sound the alarm on inflation by any means, but I think when you spend or allocate $5 trillion effectively in the past 12 months, when your typical government budget is more like, a trillion or two, if I remember correctly. I mean, it's very greatly um, in the past five years uh, because we've always been fighting some crisis. I mean, we make up a new crisis to fight endlessly to find a way to spend more money. But yeah, I'm ready to say we won't have a hard time uh, hurdling that 2% inflation target here in the next three years. I, I think it's got to show up. Yeah, I mean, probably, probably. When, at least at that, it's not runaway. Like we're not talking double digits there. So hopefully the one thing... Because to, to what you were saying, like, we can't predict. The one thing we do know is that we're in unprecedented territory. Like, there's there's no, from like a, from a, a debt, you know, and stimulus perspective, Yeah. Um, there's no benchmark for us to look at or, or kind of build off. So we'll see. Yeah. What else the, is in the fishbowl? Oh, before, actually, before we pop off, you, you mentioned this briefly, uh, but on the, the Mexican GDP side, because I do think uh, that this, I think this is interesting, but one thing that I found that was, that was really interesting that I saw in Bloomberg was the U.S. stimulus in 2020 contributed more to the increase in Mexican GDP than Mexico's stimulus package by an order of magnitude. And so um, if we talk, talk numbers, 
the US, US stimulus contributed about 3.5% to Mexico's GDP growth in 2020. Mexico's stimulus contributed less than a percent, I think less than half a percent. Like, that's insane. And part of this is a, is a growth in remittances. So people sending money um, back to their, yes. their home countries. So people in the US getting their money, sending it over to Mexico was a significant tr- contributing factor to, to Mexican GDP. So, I mean, just the US is just, you know, America, right? Just fueling the world's economies accidentally. Well, there's another We, we usually destroy economies purposefully, <laughs> but now we, we oh, are accidentally we, We've been fueling. spending money all over the world for decades. I mean, it, like it like we never have to pay the bills. It's just fabulous. But uh you missed another piece, I think, that the Mexican government has taken a very conservative approach. Yeah to the stimulus. I mean, they really haven't added much to the economy. So uh, that in contribution to how much bigger the US economy is and therefore the stimulus checks. Hey, yeah, let's share the love though. I'm all for this, right? Let's let's yeah. give Mexico some cash. It's like one, one thing that's, I'm gonna drop a, uh, a piece of reading that no one should read. <laughs> so I'm leaving just, I don't know, I don't know what you call a recommendation that isn't a recommendation. Yeah. Um, but mainly because no, uh, yeah, sure. I'll, I'll, I'll take that. Why not? Um, so Milton Friedman, many, many moons ago, uh, he, he left us about 15 years ago. Um, but back in the sixties, uh, wrote a, wrote a book about the history of, um, monetary history of the United States. Um, and there's a chapter in there, the great contraction that walks through 1929 to 1933. And yep. it's basically just saying like the fed, come on fed, like, do you not know why you were created? Right, which at that time they kind of didn't, to be honest, it hadn't been around that long. But uh, but it walks through like in a line by line fashion, like the history of what happened during those four years. It is fascinating, fascinating. Um, anyone that is listening to this podcast will fall asleep by the end of page one, which is why I, I'm not going to say it's a recommendation. But if you are just economics wonk, like read that The Great Contraction, they like pulled out that chapter as its own solo book. Uh, it's it's really interesting. I found it most interesting to contrast like what we're doing, what we've been doing over the past 12 years uh, to what happened then. And, uh, and so anyway, that's a, a non-reco reco. No, I mean, here's another one on that. I think it's chapter 13 of Business Adventures with John Brooks. Um, oh yeah, that's a, that's John a great Brooks. book. That's a great um, book. Yeah, I mean, you'll probably fall asleep, uh, but if you're hardcore, I if I remember right, chapter 13 is on monetary policy and it's uh, a super interesting. So. Uh, there's there's some homework that is a uh, recommendation non-recommendation on those <laughs> exactly phones. it was this was one of those times where it made it made the wife be like why did i marry you because i i finished this book um i finished it this week and my uh what it led me to want to do was go back and read my economic history of the united states textbook like that i was like fueled to to consume more of this it's just i don't know but the macro is is phenomenal so anyway all right Let's wake back up. I'm starting up. to get really concerned. I mean, so I have an economics minor and you like, you're much a bigger economics nerd than me. I think the mix of economics and finance is, is great from the macro, macroeconomics to, to think about how systems work and then the finance to like get into the nitty gritty. I just think it's a great, great combo. I love yeah, that stuff. Those are the fictional narratives that your brain needs to feel in control. I feel like every everything I tell you, I believe you you, yeah, you call a fictional just, narrative. Yeah, I'm not saying right. it's not true. I'm not saying it's not true, but 
anyway uh all right back on the fishbowl i mean a non-fictional narrative is what's uh how you were right about jack ma you want to hit that oh yeah flight logs <laughs> flight logs and uh CEOs of his companies resigning and who knows what else. Oh, after the halted IPO, go for it. Jack Ma, where are you? So, months ago, probably Dougal's was uh, on this. I thought he was absolutely crazy about Jack Ma had him and seen. And this was after the Chinese government effectively what took his IPO off the shelf pretty much. So, he was slated to be, I mean, Mark Zuckerberg plus bill gates of china you know like plus bezos yeah like he was going to be the man in terms of business genius uh incredibly wealthy everything and it just all halted basically the ipo stopped abruptly and then he wasn't seen and then what he was like he his picture showed up in a massage parlor or at a golf course or something crazy. Do you remember the details? I think it was a golf course. I I didn't read about the massage parlor part. I think it was a golf course. (laughs) Let's go with golf course. I got him confused with uh, Robert Kraft, you know, and, (laughs) and then somebody is it New York times uh, tracked down his flight logs. And apparently like he's, he's on the move a little bit um this is just the most bizarre story i don't even know what to think about it yeah i mean it it shows that he's he's been behind the scenes um on the or when i say behind the scenes like very very front and center like in person in beijing with a lot of the ant group uh, negotiations but behind the scenes from the public light he's been flying around his public jet or public jet uh, <laughs> i flying around public jets he does not he's been flying around in his private jet um back and forth largely between beijing and a resort and he slowed down his travel. I love how this said that his, his like travel has slowed down considerably because he used to fly on average every three days. And now he only flies once a week, which like, I don't know. I mean, I guess relatively speaking, sure, that's half as much. But that's <laughs> that's still an aggressive amount of travel uh, for someone that's been off the grid. So but but he's he's a part of all these negotiations. So he basically goes to the beach, sips on his Mai Tai, which explains, by the way, why his local bar hadn't seen him because he's at the resort getting them. He's probably got the uh, all-inclusive package at the resort. And then he goes to Beijing to negotiate. That's all he does with his life. Oh, the all-inclusive package. All right. You got fishbowl or you want me to dive in fishbowl? Did you see, we were making fun of MicroStrategy. Did you see Square is buying tons of Bitcoin and we were both saying how we like Square. Like It's the beard. Gotta be the beard, man. Um, that makes me like bad ideas. A lot less. Gets, bad ideas get stuck in the beard, and then he's like, "Well, I mean, that crumb's been sitting there for a couple of days. Might as well eat it." They did something else that was really aggressive. Who else did the Square buy? Like, oh, Title JDZ's. Oh yeah, streaming service. Yeah. So streaming services are like a guaranteed way to lose money. Um, basically, this this is gonna be their next caviar. This is a dumb purchase. Bad ideas getting stuck in the beard. Yeah. Okay. So here's how it goes. Mr. Dorsey and Jay-Z began to discuss an acquisition a few months ago. Like this is just people. They just wanted a reason to have a Zoom call and they burned $300 million. That's all that happened here. So I, I bet J- Jay-Z, or they should call him Mr. Carter if they're going to be respectful of, of Mr. <laughs> Dorsey. Jay-Z called up Jack and said, my friend... Dreyfus got billion dollars. Can I has billion dollars? That was it. And Dorsey's like, uh, 
No, but you can have 300 million. Like, you know, it's not a big deal. Yeah, Dr. Dre, remember when Dr. Dre uh, on the Beats acquisition went out and drank too much and, and told everyone? And then the okay. deal almost... You, what? you make that sound like uh, he was he was knitting at home, heard about it, and then went out and drank too much. He's already drinking too much. I'm uh, Dr. Dre. My, my first concert, I went to the Up and Smoke tour, right? And uh, did you remember, remember that, that tour? I remember that tour, yeah. yes. So it's basically the... Um, uh death row records like had a had a tour uh called up and smoke on that very excitingly great concert overall very excitingly uh they were going to do regulators which has warren g and nate dog right warren g spitting hot lyrics Uh, nate dog rest in peace rest in peace nate dog coming out with his his harmonic philharmonic vocals um however only nate dog came out because Warren G was getting too cranked in the back. And I was like, picture regulators with only the hook and then two minutes of silence. <laughs> they didn't have anyone else jump up. No, there. no. It was just, <laughs> just Nate Dog. <laughs> and Nate Dog did it. What? He just like sang it? He just like. <laughs> he just sang it and then silence and then sang it, sang the hook again. And then si- like. And <laughs> you're. <laughs> Oh, you're like trying to jam to the. I mean, is the trying, crowd like throwing stuff? Trying. Like, what's it's, happening? It's ridiculous. It was so ridiculous. Uh, I've been to plenty of those type shows where, like, I mean, I can think of times where, like, Snoop is stumbling around, not really putting his words together so great. No offense, Snoop. I'm not trying to trying to talk trash, uh, but like, someone's always attempted to perform the show right to just have someone not show There's up no try it's the greatest thing no try <laughs> what else is in the fishbowl oh i thought you had one more for us okay um so something that for for a few years i believed i'm not gonna say this is like a, a crazy theory because many people probably believe it but i believed um and i found this article this week that's pretty that i thought was really interesting is that at some point so we have this um this huge surge in over the last you know 20 years or so in uh, software engineers right being like the hot commodity when it comes to um to employment right high pay uh, scarce resource et cetera et cetera I, I i really think that we're going to end up in a place in the not too distant future i'm going to call it a decade because that feels like a safe amount of time for anything to change um where things move to a much more low code no code uh, type of situation where it doesn't mean that you don't need software engineers by any means but it means that the work that they do is much more specialized whereas everything is kind of built on software today and i think that no code low code future is i think we're going toward it i think it's fascinating i think it's meaningful when we think about the types of businesses that will be successful in the future and where businesses come from today you following so far yeah it sounds like you had a bad week programming and you're just ready to throw on the towel so this is another fake narrative i'm telling myself <laughs> no keep going <laughs> yeah i have bad day programming i'm like oh we don't we don't need code who yeah. needs code the future um, is no code so you you sent me this week which i think feeds into this too this article about um zapier uh which is a company that basically it's like a i'll call it an if this then that type of company where you can use low code so you can you can use their software to say um if something, ha- if this action's taken on my website as an example, then please do this action without me having to code at all. You can just do it through Zapier. 
I haven't gone deep into Zapier, used it very deeply, but how I have used it, which is like a, this is a very layman's use case, is there have been a couple of occasions where I've wanted to make sure that if a certain email came in, I acted on it really quickly. Yep. And so I've used Zapier to basically say, if an email with this subject line or from this person comes in, can you text me? And like, so that's like something that Zapier could do like on a, from a, a layperson's basis. And so, so they've basically built out this like massive from a valuation perspective um, organization with very little funding um, is basically what you sound over to me, which I think is really interesting. And so Zapier is, an, is, a, is a version of low code, no code. Uh, there's also this company called Composer. Have you heard about Composer? Just briefly. Briefly, yeah. So, well, it hasn't launched yet, so it makes sense. Um, but it's uh, tying this back to investing. The theory that the people at Composer have is that right now we spend too much time um, having to wrangle like the uh, portfolio performance and using a whole bunch like Excel spreadsheets to calculate perform, uh, portfolio performance. And we spend too much time on the execution of trades and the creativity the beauty and the creativity of, of investing is in the investment strategy itself. And so they want to make it such that in a low code, no code way, you can build out investment strategies, right? And then they handle all the APIs on both ends to execute your trades and also to, according to that strategy, and also to like reconcile from your multiple brokerages and whatnot, um, all your performance, which components of all of that, I think exist out there. The way that they're talking about it feels very different because they're not just talking about like you've got Charles Schwab and Robinhood, but what they're talking about is if you if you got NFTs and you're trying to buy artwork and you've got your your Charles Schwab brokerage account and you whatever you have your right like how do you start to execute between all of those according to your strategy and how do you use machine learning to figure out um, what maybe your strategy isn't doing today that should do in the future? They haven't launched yet again, so this is all at this point like a it feels, at least from a reader outside in, like pretty theoretical and ideal state go forward. So I'll have to see what the software actually looks like. But I thought that was a really interesting, like another take on the no code, low code. You look uh, quizzical, skeptical, No, this maniacal. is just such a, there's such an interesting ebb and flow here between, um, I think of it as like technical, non-technical work. So you go back to the web, the early web, when you basically had to learn HTML and your other languages to actually build a website. And then uh, the GoDaddy's and the Squarespace's all made that super simple. And then uh, the analytics got built on top of that super simple, again, like WordPress site. And then the analytics initially, you would like, were placing your own tags and using Google Analytics. And then that got all built and automated. And exactly. so this cycle just, I mean, it's never going to end and it, it ebbs and flows. I don't like with the composer use case you're talking about, it sounds overly complex and it sounds, well, it sounds like they're trying to accomplish a lot that would make a strategy complex. Maybe they make it all simple and easy to use, but I, I get these concerns about this black box thing, you know, like, Oh, we're just yeah. going to handle this, 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 and this. And it's like, well, I actually need to understand how this thing works. Yeah, it's. I mean, it, that's. I think to your ebb and flow point, which is a great one. Like that's kind of what happens, right? With these ebbs and flows, like the black, like they're they're become they're, there's a black box created somewhere. A black box around your money is like a different kind of thing. The composer may not be it, right? But I think the the concept to me is interesting because it's almost like a uh, an unbundling, I'd say, of uh, of like Wealthfront, 
which you you've talked about being great, right? Yeah. Where like Wealthfront, you say, here's my hundred dollars or whatever, you know, whatever amount you're giving them. And then they're like, okay, we're going to figure out what the best way is according to what you've told us your risk profile is, et cetera, to invest that. And with this, at least the way that it's described, it sounds like to me, I'm going to give you my investment strategy. Like I'm going to spend all my time on the strategy and you do all the stuff that Wealthfront does to execute on that. Right. But I'm, I'm going to give you what my strategy is. I don't know if that's the way it ends up being executed, but that's like, that, that is, it's just, there's something interesting there and maybe a V2, V3, V4 of this evolution. Yeah, it's super cool. I'm uh, pessimistic here because I've been down this road, uh, specifically in the finance world with multiple brokerages now who have had like really cool ideas who have, have eventually gone bankrupt and, and sold the, sold me their client <laughs> downstream. So that, that happened to me twice in the past year where like, uh, motif investing yeah motif investing was one of my favorite things it's kicked off in like 2013 and it basically allowed you to build a custom mutual fund that other people could buy that could track performance like for its time it was so far ahead of the game and i had all my performance tracking and management in there and uh, they raised tons of money and they went bankrupt and sold assets to folio investing and then folio investing got bought by goldman sachs and it like I've been kicked around the curve. So with Composer specifically, I almost want to talk about it in the non-investing sense because I go, that sounds pretty cool, but I'm not putting my money there because I don't want the hassle of dealing with in three years when this is no longer in vogue, if that makes any sense. But that's just a uh, personal bitterness on my end. Yeah, I, guess. I get that. Fool Skippy once. <laughs> Fool Skippy twice? Yeah, oh. three times, you won't four be fooled times. again. Yeah. At, at the higher level, I mean, like, is there an investment thesis here? How do you really see this playing out? The themes basically being no code, low code future, I think uh, broadly, I think it's really interesting. And um, there was the, the article that I've like alluded to a couple of times, but didn't mention was one that was called, it's called Excel Never Dies. I found this article to be so fascinating from the low code, no, no code, low code perspective, and from like the unbundling, uh, rebundling perspective. And so I'll, uh, for those that want to go read this, which will be, I think there's a hundred percent overlap in the Venn diagram between the people that, that went and read my, uh, housing contagion article, the 150 yeah. page Harvard article yeah. and the people that are going to go read the Excel never dies, um, article, but it's basically about the unbundling and the inspiration that Excel has caused and how Excel as a platform or as a program is like, uh, will be everlasting. And so I'm going to give a, I'll give a couple high level points and then I'll pull out a couple of takeaways that I do think relate to, to investing that I had from it. Um, one is that Excel has a usability and flexibility that allows people that don't understand the programming behind it to be able to use it. That's the usability part. And the flexibility is the creativity that you can have from it is virtually endless. Right. Mm -hmm. And so um, part of this article was talking about the businesses that have stemmed from an unbundling of Excel. I'll give like a few examples here um, because Excel was so give, I'll get some, I hate to do this to you, but I don't, cause I love it. I'm gonna give a little bit of history first. So, so basically the history I'm going to do, I'm going to talk real fast. I'll get through it quick. The history of the, uh, the spreadsheet itself was there was this company called VisiCorp that, uh, that started a, a, a product called VisiCalc uh, back in the late seventies. Um, and then, that I think I bought by a company called Personal Software, but that was the start yeah. of like the spreadsheet being um, being used by, I'll call it quote unquote, everyday person, not as everyday as today. Um, Mitch Kapoor, 
ended up being a, uh, a product manager at this company um, at personal software. And then he one day was like, look, I got a better idea for all this, uh, this stuff. And, uh, and back at the time, I, back in my research days, I, I studied this as a case study and it was fascinating. So Mitch Kapoor basically said, I've got this idea to make this better. And they were like, you can't pull that off. And so like a bunch of fooligan hooligans said, so we'll just like, um, you go off and go off in your merry way. And we're going to allow you to create a competitive spreadsheet program to ours. Like we're going to carve that out of your uh, non-compete and go do it. He launches Lotus and Lotus one, two, three being the software, which exploded yeah. from the beginning. Like within yeah. a year, it was like over 50 million, hundred million dollars in revenue or something like that public. Um, the rest is history. Mitch Kapoor, uh, and Frida Kapoor, fantastic people doing um, great work in both the the DEI space and um, inclusivity space today and have some hot investments, Kapoor Capital. Anyway, so that, that was the first issue of the spreadsheet. Then you got um, Microsoft, right, that comes into play. What Microsoft did that was fascinating was they had this Odyssey team and this Odyssey team basically um, went to create this spreadsheet. This was their second attempt at creating a spreadsheet, but the Odyssey team was creating a spreadsheet and decided to launch the spreadsheet where? Where did this, this program launch? Yeah, you'd think it would be MS-DOS, wouldn't you? You'd no, think it'd be MS-DOS. Yeah, yeah, but they did it on the Mac because they needed the GUI because the Mac had the GUI type situation. So they launched on the Mac, had success there. Then um, GUI being graphical user interface. Then Windows came out, boom, Excel we got today. So anyway, skirt, let's get back. So that's a little history. I mean, how did this, uh, I'm just here over here contemplating my life. How did this go wrong? <laughs> <laughs> This podcast is about Excel, and I love Excel. Oh, how'd the podcast oh. go wrong? Well, you made you made me a co-host. <laughs> there we go. So, so anyway, so uh, so but so but when Excel was created, right? The thought was that this is going to be an easier way to have like your accounting and your charts and stuff like that. Yeah. But basically, people have been using Excel in all sorts of crazy and creative ways. You've got um, some of the things that were listed in this article, which I thought were great. Was use it for like HR and payroll use it for finance and accounting, use it for sales, use it to be a project management tracker, use it to be um, like as your calendar, right? Use Excel for all this stuff. And then the unbundling where that comes from is that people are saying, okay, Excel isn't really built to do exactly this, although it's, it's flexible enough for us to do it. Okay. So instead of us continuing to use this as our invoicing system, I'm gonna create a product called QuickBooks, right? That's yep, specifically for top. invoicing. Yep. Right. Um, instead of using this to track my customers, I'm going to create a product called Salesforce, which is specifically right. So it's, it's the unbundling of Excel to launch these phenomenal businesses. You know, I, how many people have you run across in your professional career that like aren't particularly good users of Excel that basically only use Excel for every task? Yeah. Like, yes. I mean, like the they people. make their stupid calendar, you know, the antiquated. It looks like it came from 1982 calendar that everything they do is in Excel. None of it's particularly well done, but that's the crutch. That, that's the whole thing with, I know I can rearrange the size of the box and I know I can type and I know I can color the boxes. And if you can do that, it's almost like uh, a combination of paint and Microsoft Word with uh, a calculator inside and you can do wonderful things with that. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, and to tie this back to uh, my my like Excel conversion, right? And then the the two themes that I think are interesting or more interesting um, or particular, sorry, the two things that are particularly interesting that I pulled um, out of this, I'll get to in a moment. But for me, so I, I built my initial like investment model and philosophy in Excel, you know, about 17 years ago, something like that, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, it was back when I like, I was lost in a cave 
like Plato trying to find my allegory. And so it was very value investment focused. Is this back when like, you were recommending fifth third to me? You're like, I, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to admit, third. I don't want to admit that. <laughs> is that? But yeah. But yeah, okay. it was, okay. it was anyway. <laughs> well, I got to bring up fifth third at a time like this. Um, Sorry. So, so yeah, so I, and I, so I, I built it in Excel back then. And then even as I switched over to more of a long, long trend momentum philosophy, still in Excel. And at some point I just hit like a capacity gap in Excel. Cause I couldn't, I couldn't crunch the data. And so then I started coding it. Right. And so now yeah. similar as the unbundling, like I've built out like a, a homespun model that's uh, that's programmed. Right. Similar thing. And I just, I just think it's really interesting, but Excel was the way to, to like play Excel was the way to, to make that happen. Now, let me throw out two concepts that I think we can spin into other stuff that I pulled out of here that are related to a way that one way that I think about investing, but we can relate to other stuff. So one is there was this concept of the mental model inertia um, that came up in the article. And so what the, this is a quote by this uh, phenomenal um, user experience designer, which I can't remember their name right now, um, but there's great inertia in users' mental models. Stuff that people know well tends to stick even when it's not helpful. Yes. This alone is surely an argument for being conservative and not coming up with new interaction styles, right? I think that that's awesome quote. And we can talk about that. The second is, are you familiar with the Lindy effect? Ooh, vaguely. But you have okay. to refresh my memory. Yeah. So are you familiar with New York City? Yes. In New York, there, uh, there used to be this place called Lindy's. Um, it was at Times Square. And so you could see it if you were watching TRL back in the day, you could probably like see Lindy's in the background. Phenomenal cheesecake. Um, anyway, so uh, so Lindy's, the uh, there's someone I think decades ago wrote that basically like Lindy's will be around forever because Lindy's has been around forever. Just spoiler alert, Lindy's is no longer around. But but the Lindy effect um, was a term that came out of that. And it, the, it's the idea that the longer something lasts, the longer it can be expected to last. So like, if you've been around for a hundred years, then most likely you're going to be around for another hundred years. Like that's kind of the Lindy effect, yeah. um, which I think is like, is really interesting. Right. And it made me think about um, a concept you've brought up before, although this doesn't talk about performance, it just talks about existence. But when you've brought up around mutual funds, so people will be like, oh, well, this has performed for the last three years. And so I'm going to bind this mutual fund. And then it might not. Those, those two things together, this mental model inertia, where people like sticking to something that they they know and feel like they can understand, even when maybe it's not great, and the concept that um, that if something has occurred historically or existed historically, most likely it will in the future. I thought were two interesting things I pulled out of the article that aren't even like pulled that out of an Excel context um, that I I think are important to talk about. Is the Lindy effect true or not? The reason why the Lindy effect could be true. Are things like uh, like network effects, right? And uh, and quality are the two that are listed in this article. Like you have more experience, you can build more quality products. And if you've been around longer, in theory, maybe you have some you have some kind of an edge, and you've been able to build network effects and user effects. So that's why you could be around. Um, but I don't think it's necessarily uh, true. I read some research this week that talked about stocks that uh, triple in value, right? And in a short period of time, I think it was in less than a year, and what actually happens in those cases is the, it's about a 50% chance that they triple in value again versus about a 50% chance that they get cut in half from that point. So at some point, I mean, when we talk about bubbles, it, but it almost ties to the Lindy effect. Like sometimes you just uh, continue to perform regardless of if it's rational or your, your brand staying power um, can take that next step, even if it's not rational.
yeah there, there's a part of my um my like the philosophy behind my model that relies on a little bit of lindy effect uh it's not it's not completely blind you know like it's not like a blind trust of lindy effect but if you think about the two parts to it there's the first part is has this performed consistently over yeah. i'll say decent periods of time and then their last piece is um is it like crushing it today right and so that first part you could say has like it's got a little, a little bit of lind going on because it's saying like i'm basically saying like there's there's some reason if you've consistently beaten the market over a material part of time i'm going to say like there, there's a reason for it and the the blind faith which i think like you and and other um fundamental folks could like completely rip apart is like saying you really shouldn't look at that blindly. Like who knows why that could be? It could be like it could be for a variety of reasons. But I'm saying if you do that over material period of time, like there's probably something. Like you have something oh, going on something that the market. There. Sometimes it's hard to quantify, but there's something there. I, yeah, yeah, there's something there. And the second part is is momentum, right? And then the last the last bit you're also showing. So you you show consistent like performance over time, and now you do on the crushing today, and I buy into that momentum. So there's like a little bit of Lindy there. Um, I think as a blind high level concept, it probably isn't completely true, but it's, it's an interesting uh, mental model to have. Agreed. What do you think about that, that first point, the mental model inertia, right? I'll, I'll, I'll spit it one more time. There's great inertia in users, mental model, stuff that people know well tends to stick even when it's not helpful. I'll just say out that, that first part. What's your reaction to that? I love it. I mean, it's really, really wise. Um, I actually tie it back to what I was just talking about. The person that their inertia relates to they learned how to use excel once and now they think excel is the tool to do everything in but that's the brilliance of excel like it's not intimidating it's you have your non-technical people who can get comfortable with it and use it and so i'm trying to think of other examples but um this is a really wise quote i'm a fan i i think it i mean i think it happens in everyday life oh too. no it absolutely right. does it's like the the thing that that feels comfortable or that I recognize I'm going to go with right there's there was a um, a phenomenal quote I'm going to call this phenomenal quote from a, a non-famous person but it was just a colleague that I had about 12 years ago or so right that was talking about some actions that our company was taking at the time and the way they said it was they were like uh, it's as if we're looking in the house for the keys even though we know we know they're in the garage because the lights are on in the house Right. And it was what he was referring to was basically like uh, there was data that was making something obvious that we should take an action, but that action had discomfort. And so we just we did the thing that was that we normally did. But I, I just loved that quote. It's like just because the lights are on, we're looking in the house, but we know the keys are in the garage. So, like, it, yeah. it, you know, and you can only do that for so long. But I, th I think people do that, that kind of stuff all the time. Like, I'm used to it. I'm just going to keep doing it. Y you've talked about was it last week when you said, I'm, I'm not gonna, I didn't trade last week. I'm not gonna trade next week, right? We're just, we're throwing out ideas, but it's not, right? Um, and I think that, that that like boring approach, right? Which, which many, many successful investors have talked about, or right, a lot is like, this stuff is boring. If you do this stuff well, like it's actually boring Super over a long boring. period of time. Yeah. People know that, like, like, you know that, you know that you should buy broad market funds and be passive generally, right? Like, you know mm -hmm. this stuff, but, game stonk but amc you know like whatever so i i think i think it happens all the time it's like human coping mechanisms it's it's like this worked for me in the past so it makes sense for me to continue to do it in the future it could be hunting 
hunting and gathering for food. You know, like uh, I know that I've been on the trail of this fox for two days, but I know last time I just didn't give up and I eventually found a way to get the fox and that fulfilled my needs. Yeah, there there was a there's an article from this week that's called Avoiding Bad Decisions. I love that one. Yeah, it's to give the the high level like points. There were five of them that the article said about uh, why we make bad decisions is one, we're unintentionally stupid, which often comes with warning signs of we're being we're tired, we're being emotional, we're in a rush, or we're distracted, or we're operating in a group or working with an authority figure. Second is we solve the wrong problem. That one I think is huge. I see that all the time. Right? Well, that's um, your lights on in the house problem. Too. Exactly. Exactly. Third is we use incorrect or insufficient uh, information, which sometimes comes because uh, we're hearing this second, third, fourth hand, right? Someone spoke to someone who spoke to someone who spoke to someone, right? And then second, we're just like reading about it in mass media and assuming that that headline is facts without going into like depth. Uh, Fourth is we fail to learn, which is huge. And then fifth is we focus on optics over outcomes. Um, I think all these are great points. And I uh, found this um, on Farnham Street. Farnham Street, um, great. Yeah, which is which is great. But I, I think those two things are are connected and really interesting. This reminds me of the famous Munger quote of just tell me where I'm going to die so I cannot go there. Like, um, yeah. sometimes you you should think about avoiding bad with more passion than you think about seeking good. And I thought that was great, Reed. We should put that out on the Twitter feed as well. Or, or parlor or wherever we end up. <laughs> since, <laughs> since everyone hates Twitter. that Let me rant about that a little bit. I There's such a good investing community on Twitter that it's become my default thing. But I had forgotten for a quick second that basically, um, I don't know, 60% of the world probably doesn't even use Twitter. Maybe more than that, 70%. I don't, the, the social medias? is like not my world i don't i'm i'm old fogalicious when it comes to social media don't worry we're gonna hire a college intern they're gonna handle our Something. socials it's gonna be Something. so awesome